Well, as we turn our attention to reading and preaching of God's Word, let's pray and ask God's help. Lord, we come to you this evening as we came to you this morning. We come with open hands. We come begging your care, your grace. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes to your truth, that you would let our ears be unstopped, that we might hear you, that Christ would be lifted up and that we would see him. You would guard the the words of your servant, and that, Lord, we would be blessed through the Spirit this evening as your word is read and it is preached. Lord, be glorified and care for your people. Feed your sheep this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you'll turn your Bibles or or tap on your devices, uh, we're in this evening, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, we'll be starting. Uh, This evening, we're continuing our uh, sermon series, Foundations of the Faith. We're looking at the bad news is really bad, so as you have an idea where we're headed this evening. Um, Our evening sermons, uh, for quite a while, for a season now, we're going to focus, uh, as I've mentioned, on a survey of what the Bible teaches as we work our way through, and and as we... Bible, the scriptures, and we're going to uh, allow the Heidelberg Catechism to help us, give us a little bit of train tracks. Uh, it's going to give us a, a guide uh, that we're going to follow as we work our way through, uh, getting a better understanding, as it were, of the, the theology of the, the scriptures. And even though we're going to use the Heidelberg as a, uh, a thematic guide, we're not going to necessarily um, let them uh, run the sermon. We're going to still be looking to God's Word. It'll be God's Word that we will read and uh, we'll be preaching. Uh, but we are going to seek, as the Protestant Reformation did, to recover great truths, looking to the Scriptures, uh, looking not to invent, but to remember the ancient paths. Uh, so we're going to do that as we move systematically uh, through the Scriptures uh, in the days ahead. Uh, we're almost through the very beginning in the Heidelberg Catechism. There's a short section. It's entitled Misery. It's kind of like, hey, here's the bad news. You know, as we look at the gospel, there's the bad news. Uh, you're a sinner, and you're going to go to hell. That's really bad news. And then we get the good news, which thankfully we only have um, tonight and next, the next evening service we have together, and we'll be through the misery section. We will by God's grace, work through, and we'll be coming in to uh, the deliverance, and we're beginning to look at the good news, as it were, and then we'll move on from there eventually and look at the final portion, the gratitude section. So we look forward to that. So, as I mentioned last time, let us trudge ahead and bear together and pray for God's grace as we move through the hearing and the weight and the, uh, the difficulty sometimes, the challenge of the bad news, but at the same time, we'll still have the good news held before us and anticipation and understanding. We're going to read a large portion tonight, and I think it will be uh, helpful, and we'll see that. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 3. This is God's Word. Follow along. Listen. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry. And his face fell. The Lord God said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, 
which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he, built a city, uh, when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mahujiel, and Mahujiel fathered Methusiel, and Methusiel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the father of all instruments, bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nahamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever and ever. Amen. I know that we have a few Tolkien fans. There's a few folks here that are familiar with the Lord of the Rings, uh, the writings of J.R. Tolkien. And if you're not, uh, you'll still be able to understand story I'm going to, to tell you about here. I don't think it'll be too lost. In the Lord of the Rings, there is a, a land that uh, Tolkien writes about called Middle-earth, and in Middle-earth, there is a great kingdom of men, and that's the kingdom of Gondor, and in uh, this bigger than it is when we come to it in the stories, uh, Gondor's original capital city was Osgiliath, uh, which was on uh, a river, the, the river Anduin, and it was this beautiful, mighty, glorious city. But sadly, as uh, if you're familiar with the story, as Sauron, the evil uh, leader of the, the rebellious ones, as he began to, to war against men in Middle-earth, uh, he was able to sack and destroy with his armies of orcs and other evil beasts uh, the great city of Osgiliath and to leave it by the time we come to the story uh, in the Lord of the Rings as you read it by the time the fellowship that crazy group that's been brought together of elves men and dwarves and and these hobbits creatures that are coming to try to 
be used to stop evil in Middle-earth? As they come and see the city, finally, uh, what they see is not the beautiful, glorious city that was built and lived in and inhabited, but what they see is a ruin, uh, a fearful sight, uh, a city that's been destroyed, raised to the ground, that's full of orcs and evil things, and is dangerous, and it's not a place you want to be. And yet, as we read through the stories, we see that the, the rightful heir to the throne of the king of Gondor, Aragorn, when he returns, when the king comes back and defeats Sauron and evil, one of the things he eventually does is restore this former city, Asgalath, to its glory. And it once again is a, a pearl in the kingdom of Gondor. Uh, this previous city that was once beautiful but then fell into just wretched despair at the king's return and the king's labors and the king's work. Uh, the city is eventually restored and is glorious again. And I say this because uh, I hope maybe, particularly for those who are Tolkien fans, you could see some connections. And for those who have no idea what elves, dwarves, and orcs are, hopefully you at least followed and you saw a connection. Uh, and that is that uh, as this great, beautiful city fell, it's like the fall of humanity. God did not uh, create a sinful Adam and Eve were created, as the scriptures say, good. And they sinned and brought death into the world, and they caused humanity to be like that wreck of that city. But it is Christ, our returning king, who restores his people to life. So as we look this evening at this, this long passage of scripture, uh, what I want us to see as we look across these couple chapters in Genesis, uh, is that fallen humanity is totally depraved and your only hope by God's grace is spiritual rebirth through faith in Jesus. That's what we're looking at this evening. Fallen humanity is totally depraved and your only hope by God's grace is spiritual rebirth through faith in Jesus. And I do see the time and I'm keeping track. We won't be here for an hour, don't worry. I know we went a little long, but I did give you a warning. So before we dive into our main points that we'll look at in just a moment, let's read some, some Heidelberg Catechism just to help us in setting the groundwork. Question six, Heidelberg Catechism, did God create people so wicked and perverse? No, God created them good. Righteousness and holiness so that they might truly know God their creator, love him with all their heart, and live with him in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. And then question seven asks, then where does this corrupt human nature come from? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. This fall has so poisoned our nature that we are born sinners corrupt from conception on. And then question eight asks, the final question this evening, but are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and incline toward all evil? Yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. So even though we're looking at, as I mentioned, the bad news that's really bad, we still get to see the glimmer of hope and the joy that is in Christ. So we're going to look at three things briefly this evening together. The goodness of God's creation, the consequences of the fall, and the depravity of man and the hope of Christ. So first, this goodness of God's uh, creation. 
Uh, that was the context leading into what we read. We jumped in in ver chapter 3, and we came in reading about the fall. But prior to that, in the first two chapters, uh, we get recounted to us from the Lord and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit the fact that, that all things were good. God created everything. Uh, we start in Genesis 1, and it tells us uh, that God, the great eternal one, existent, created everything that there is, time and space. He created these things, and he went through, and in creation, recounts it's good, it's good. There was only one thing that wasn't good, and that was the fact that Adam was alone, and then Eve was created from Adam, and then again, everything was good. But when we come to the end of chapter 2, we have God saying, everything is good. It's good, very good, very good. And that was the context that we were looking at that exists before we move into chapter 3, where we uh, began to read, sadly, uh, of the fall of Adam and Eve's sin that brought death and the sinful nature for humanity into existence. We see earlier in chapters 1 and 2, when you read through there, you see that God created man in his own image, and he did this so that we might know, love, and live with him, our creator, that we might be able to praise and glorify him and enjoy him. It's a beautiful thing when you think about it. Uh, there is no other creature here on earth that God created in his image. There's some pretty amazing animals in this earth. A lot of us love cats. A lot of us love dogs. Sometimes we fight over that, but whatever it is, there are a few people that have gotten their dogs and cats to love each other. I'm impressed, but either way, our dogs and cats that are great pets and we have a, a wonderful relationship with them, uh, they're not made in God's image. They're not made to be able to grasp the reality that God exists and He's revealed Himself in the Scriptures and they can't reason in these things and think about it. They can't pray and, and they can't read God's Word and they can't praise Him and enjoy communion and fellowship with Him. I mean, I'm sure they say a dog's life is great, but I don't know. Can it be? Can it really be that great if you have no opportunity to be able to be in relationship with the Creator of all things? The goodness of God's creation. That's the context that we come into as we, we shift into uh, the verses that we read and we see the consequences of the fall. The disobedience of Adam and Eve, that's the origin, as we read, the origin of sin and evil. And we read through this, and so I don't have to repeat it because you were listening, you were following along. Uh, you, you saw that, uh, as we read, if you were reading through, uh, that Adam and Eve disobeyed God and disobeying God, they sinned. Now, some would say, well, that's a problem. They sinned. And then uh, sin does what? Sin let evil into the world. That's another problem. How can you have evil in the world? I mean, you Christians, y'all aren't very good at this. You know, y'all got to create a religion. You got to do a better job, make it a little more tidy. You know, and of course, we hear those attacks, the problem of evil, but the reality is actually those uh, who bring that accusation, they're the ones that have a problem. So if you remove the scriptures, if you remove the reality that God exists, then, then who are you or we as a people to say there is evil? We could look at different times in history, and there are groups of people doing horrible things. We talked a little bit about that this morning, and, and, and they did not look at one another and say, we sure, we sure are an evil people. They said, we're doing what's necessary, we're doing what's right. Sadly, the only reason why there can be evil which can't be seen, the sad part is it can't be seen, 
But evil in its existence actually is, uh, I think, a proof uh, of God's existence and a proof that the scriptures are true. And God does nothing to hide from evil. He does not try to skirt it or, or to dance around it. He addresses it directly and deals with it. It's not a problem that we should be as Christians uh, afraid of. If we get that accusation, I'd encourage you just to ask, why, why is anything evil if we're just evolved stardust? If we live in a, in a world that's survival of the fittest, then what's wrong with the fittest surviving regardless of the cost? How can you say anything is evil? There's no standard you can base that upon. There's no dignity and worth ultimately in humanity. We're just a little more involved than everybody else, correct? You push back a little bit and you see how hollow some of the biggest attacks against the scriptures, our glorious God, and the faith truly are. We looked at the scriptures. You go a little farther into Genesis, and uh, I think we see a, a wonderful picture here. We get in Joseph, as you move forward, a third of Genesis covers Joseph's life. Joseph prefigures Christ in many ways. Next time you read through Genesis and you're reading about Joseph's life, at the same time, think about the Lord Jesus Christ and think about all the parallels that are there and all the, the, the future pointing, uh, the prophetic things that we see in this type of Christ. But also we see in Joseph's life a beautiful way that God reveals to us uh, this supposed problem of evil and how it is not a problem for our great God. You know, as we work our way through, if you're familiar with Joseph's life, if not, I'll try to do a real quick synopsis. Joseph uh, is born. He has many brothers. Uh, he ends up being the favorite of his father, though he is not the firstborn. Uh, he is given uh, a robe by his father, many color. It's to signify that he is going to be, though he wasn't born first, he has the position and the place of a firstborn. And then God gives him dreams. And in those dreams, what is it that God tells him prophetically? Uh, your family's going to bow down to you. In fact, lots of people are going to bow down to you. And that doesn't make his brothers very happy. You can imagine that. If you have a, a younger sibling, imagine your younger sibling saying, hey, last night I had this dream, and I think it means you're going to serve me the rest of your life. Pretty cool, huh? You know, all the kids are looking at me right now like, no, well, that's not cool. But that's what was going on. And then, sadly, his brothers uh, wickedly seek to kill him. Uh, they do horrible things. He goes through suffering. Uh, he is left for dead, then sold into slavery. He's taken down into Egypt. He's in a prison in a pit. He's lifted out of there, of that area. And then God, through all these different things, works out through him that the Lord reveals things through Joseph to the Pharaoh. It ends up that Joseph becomes the second most powerful man in Egypt, the most powerful country at that time in the world, and God is using him to set aside all this grain, getting ready for a coming famine that we might see many, many people kept alive, not just Egyptians, but his own family and those whom God has made promises for, the descendants of Abraham. And then Joseph's at this pinnacle, his brothers come down begging for food. It gets revealed he is Joseph. He's alive. His brothers are very concerned. He's talking to them. And we read this in Genesis 50, 20. 
this picture that we understand, God reveals to us the clue to understand evil in the world after the fall. Genesis 50, 20. As for you, this is Joseph speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. When you think about the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ coming, there are many people who sent Jesus, humanly speaking, to the cross, and they meant evil for it. They wanted to destroy Jesus and silence Jesus, and God meant it for good because it was out of the death of Christ on the cross in which his people are saved. They meant it for evil. God meant it for good. The disobedience of Adam and Eve brought death, sin, depravity, guilt, shame, hate, fear, blame, pain, suffering into this world. That brings us to our final point for a few moments here, the depravity of man and the hope of Christ. After the fall, the depravity of man is on full display in Adam and Eve's children. What's sad, uh, we read in Genesis 3.15 this promise, the first picture of the gospel where, uh, where God says here in this interaction, I will put enmity between you, speaking to the serpent, speaking to Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And, and he's giving this picture, of, he's giving for the first time this promise, he's going to deal with this, and there is a Messiah coming. And then we come to the context, uh, when you go down into chapter 4, Eve, uh, Adam and Eve come together, Eve is with child, she gives birth to her first child, this son, and what is it that she proclaims? I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. I think Eve and I think Adam thought the Messiah was just born. God is doing everything he said. And then you, as parents in this room or grandparents, you have what high hopes have you had for your children? Imagine Adam and Eve, the high hopes they have. They think Cain might be the one to fix all this. And what does Cain do? He kills his own brother. Total depravity right away, totally on display. And Cain has no one to blame but himself. But there is hope. There is hope that is brought that we see. Kevin DeYoung, a PCA pastor, I'm going to read a, a few sentences that he has written about this interaction, this ongoing situation, this problem. So DeYoung writes, our fundamental problem is not bad parents. You can't blame your parents. It's not bad schools. can't blame your education. It's not bad friends or bad circumstances. Our fundamental problem is a bad heart. It's our heart. And every single one of us is born into the world with it. All right, all right, you might be saying, I am a bad person. I make mistakes. I'm not perfect. I agree. But I'm not that bad. Well, not so fast. We're not just flawed. We are, to use the theological terminology, totally depraved. This doesn't mean we're bad all the time or as bad as we possibly could be. And this doesn't mean unregenerate people aren't capable of morally outstanding acts. Total depravity, total depravity means two things. One, we are bad through and through in our heart, our head, and our will. And two, we are unable to do anything truly righteous because our good acts do not come from faith and do not aim at the glory of God. Here's the bottom line. We are inclined toward evil, as we read in Genesis chapter 6. 
All of us, like sheep, have gone astray, as we read in Isaiah 53. Even our righteous deeds are as filthy rags before the Lord, as we read in Isaiah 64. That's a lot of bad news. Kind of ties in what we're looking at with our, our sermon here. The, the bad news is really bad. But there is hope. Praise the Lord, there is hope. We are unable to do good, and we are bent toward evil, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. And unfortunately, this phrase, born again, has become just another socio-political category. We've forgotten where it comes from. Jesus, borrowing from the prophet Ezekiel, is the one who first used the phrase. As he said to Nicodemus in John 3, 7, you must be born again, Nicodemus. You remember that interaction. If not, go and read it. Nicodemus is just flabbergasted. doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about. And Jesus is like, what are you? Are you serious, Nicodemus? You don't understand these things? Great teacher of the people? Back to, to De Young. We must not forget this command from Jesus. Yes, Jesus wants us to love, to forgive, to pray, to be humble, to do justice, and to love mercy. But we must not forget the fountainhead command from which the river of obedience flows. Trying to live a Jesus life won't help us get into heaven, and it will only discourage us over the long haul if we're not born again. This is where well-meaning, socially-minded Christians sometimes get off track. They want the world to live like Jesus, but they forget that, that we can't live like Jesus unless the Spirit of Jesus first changes us. We must be given a new heart. We must be regenerated. We must be converted. We must be changed. The Christian life, the life of faith in God, hope in Christ, and love for others necessitates, first of all, a life that has been given, a supernatural new start by the Holy Spirit. We must be born again. So we remember, as bad as it is, the bad news, it's really, really bad. The good news is, is that God is greater. God is greater than our and our sin, he's greater than the bad news. And he brings the good news, the hope that is the Lord Jesus Christ, that by grace, through faith in Christ, that we don't have to live, you don't have to live in the bad news. But as we're going to get to in a couple of evenings from now, we're going to be spending time in the good news and rejoicing together in that. Well, the big idea we're holding on to this evening, fallen humanity is totally depraved, and your only hope by God's grace is spiritual rebirth through faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, these are heavy things as we move through the bad news, the difficult things. Speaking of total depravity, reading of the fall, seeing how, how, how wicked and evil we are, outside of regeneration and forgiveness in Jesus. Oh, Lord, we are thankful for Christ. We are thankful that though we have done nothing to deserve it and there is nothing in us that deserves it, that you have poured your grace out upon us, your people. That's why we are thankful to be gathered together this evening to commune and fellowship with you, to praise you, to cry out, to sing to you, pray to you. Lord, we love you and ask that you would help us to love you even more. Thank you for the good news. Thank you for the hope and joy we have in Christ. 
In his name we pray. Amen.